This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. How are you? America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Happy Saturday. Um, I wanted to, I got one more segment here about uh, college kids, and then we'll move on from this. But actually, the real reason I want to share this editorial isn't so much to, well, I, I really just want to build up to this book that uh, I came across, written in 1899, called Royal Manhood, and I think it's really important. So let, let's build up to that first with a editorial written by a student at the University of Pennsylvania. This is an Ivy League school in Philadelphia. Uh, it's not Penn State. Penn State and UPenn are, are different. Um, so this is an Ivy League sophomore. He said, last semester was honestly the worst semester I've had at Penn so far. And all because of one thing. The white professors. It appears that the term privilege does not apply to them nor do they care to learn what it is. Imagine being a black student on Penn's campus with even one of these types of professors. I had three. And each one of those professors either did not care to learn about their white privilege or lied to me and said they did. I want to be clear here. Ivy League school uh, in Philly, right next to Drexel, which is a fine school, and also right next to Temple, which is in the ghetto. I dare this black student to go to the edge of Temple's campus and knock on a random person's door and explain to them how oppressed you are as a student at the University of Pennsylvania. Go ahead. I dare you. I dare you. Knock on the door of someone just, just in the inner city of Philadelphia. Tell them how difficult your life is. Amazing. Quote, understanding their privilege to them is very different. See, this is so funny. That's my point. He doesn't understand his privilege. Gosh, that's so funny. Isn't that a perfect example of, uh, you know, criticizing the speck in someone else's eye, you got a plank in yours kind of thing, right? Like you're just critical of how do they not understand their privilege? And you don't understand yours. How interesting. They think that by not saying racist comments in class, they're doing good, not knowing that the half-hearted attempt, this, this sentence makes no sense, but I'll read it as it's written, not knowing that that half-hearted attempt further contributes to the oppression that I experience in my predominantly white classrooms. So just being in a predominantly, so you're not even the only black person, predominantly white classroom is oppressive. Oppressive, it's oppressive. Oppressive. Not just uncomfortable, it's oppressive. There were countless times that his lack of acknowledgement of his privilege led to some of the trauma that I experienced in class. 
he would show images of slaves on plantations, which really happened, and even allow students to say ignorant comments in class. I'd love an example. I'm pretty sure if he submitted this to an English class, the professor would say, like what? I remember having an intense conversation after class. I basically told him that what he was doing was traumatic to me. And as someone who has experienced a lot of racial trauma in his life, I would not allow him to continue. <laughs> That's the arrogance I was speaking of earlier, Andrew. Uh, stuff like that. I would not allow him to continue. The professor. <laughs> I, the student, will not allow him to continue. All right, one more, one more line here. It even led me to mentally breaking down in the classroom. How we, we've, we've mentioned this many, many times in all of history. The goal was to prove to people how strong you are, how much you can overcome. You can overcome any obstacle that's put in front of you. Look at, look at how difficult my life was, but look at me now. And that is what you cashed in on, right? The ability to overcome today with the currency of victimhood, you cash in by, by proclaiming to people how pathetically weak you are. Here's this guy saying, I, I, it led me to mentally breaking down in the classroom. Like, that is nothing to be proud of. And while trying to console me, he said, there's no way I could acquire the wisdom that you possess. What? That was exactly what I needed to hear. I think he thought that that was a compliment. I, I have no idea what's going on there. I stopped going to his class for a month with different emotions going through my head from not only this class, but from the Trump election. I did not want to step foot into another white space until I made sure that my mental health was restored. The truth is you as a single person cannot make up for the horrific things that white people have done to us throughout human history. But that does not mean that you do not have the power to stop yourself from oppressing the students that you teach every day. Listen, I have, uh, I have one word for in, in response to this person's editorial. Just one word. outstanding what well, that is one of the best satires i've ever read on that like that that is, you got it that is wonderfly written uh that's was that funny or die or something like that crap who wrote that who wrote that sound? the onion is that an onion it's got i'm sorry what you say that you, th you think that's that you say that's not satire no gotta be it's gotta be I, I i find it hard to believe someone could be so pathetic and i don't mean to be rude i mean that like in the actual true definition of that word let me make a, a physical analogy because um i know people have easier time understanding physical strength right asked you to pass me the salt shaker and you said, I can't lift it. It's too heavy. What? I can't lift it. And how dare you ask me to lift it? And then you go around and you celebrate how weak you are. You're, you brag to people about how you can't lift a salt shaker. The salt shaker is too heavy for you. And then you go and you tell everyone you know. And you, and you go, you pass by construction sites. And, and you, you talk to a lumberjack and, and, uh, and an MMA fighter. And, and a fireman and, and you say look at how delicate and frail and pathetic i am praise me because i am the weakest coward to ever walk the face of the earth like you would think that that is odd behavior but that's what this guy is emotionally and i, I almost feel bad critiquing him because i think he probably has like serious emotional issues so I, i'm almost kind of kind of like 
take a step back here because he, he may have problems. But this isn't much worse than all the buttercups and snowflakes who protested and rioted at Berkeley the other day, is it? And I'm, 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 I mean this genuinely. Have these kids ever encountered any stories of bravery, strength, and, and courage in their lives? Like, have they ever read, read, <laughs> have they ever read anything about overcoming challenges and difficulties and people in history who have done this? Have they ever read any stories about people who, uh, who quickly learned that life isn't fair, but overcame anyway? No, like no, no understanding of what bravery and courage and strength really look like. I think that I think that might be the case. I think they haven't. Otherwise, they wouldn't be bragging about. Cowardice, wouldn't they? What a funny, what a funny culture one. So this is what I really wanted to read. James Isaac Vance. I put this quote on our Facebook page. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. He was a Presbyterian minister in 1899. This is about the time in America when there was this thing called um, uh, masculine Christianity. Kind of this movement to counter to the feminization of Christianity, that Jesus was a lamb and weak and soft and turn the like that kind of and instead oh you know jesus uh fashioned a whip and overturned tables in the temple too right like like, like so there's masculine christianity uh movement so he wrote this book called uh royal manhood 1899 it's so good but and i'll read more coming up next because he, he breaks down three things that make up a, a strong person three attributes of a strong person that I would recommend to, uh, to this student and to all of us. But I just want to start here because this, this ties in perfect to this person and to all the Berkeley riders. Where in all the sweep of freaks and failures and feeble sentiments and senseless blattery can there be found an object to excite deeper disgust than one of these thin, vapid, affected driveling little doodles dressed up in men's clothes but without a thimble full of brains in his head or an ounce of manhood in his anatomy how good is that like? so if you take I mean, all the, the just all the, the, the freaks and failures just like the worst of humanity is there anything worse than a thin, vapid little noodle dressed up in men, dressed up, you're dressed up in men's clothes. But you, you don't have a thimble full of brains in your head or an ounce of manhood in your anatomy. He is worse than weak. He is a weak let. What can he do? He can squeak with his little voice, strut with his unathletic members, and gabble diluted twaddle. Oh, that's so good. Gabble diluted twaddle. I think that's what the, that's what this UPenn student just did. He just gabbled diluted twaddle, because that's all you can do when you're not strong. All right. So, what are three attributes of a strong person according to this reverend? We'll talk about those next, and then I'm going to run downstairs real quick, and I'm going to pick up my uh, the biography of uh, Charles Lindbergh that I'm reading. I'm going to hope I can open up right to the page that I'm thinking of about his father uh, talking about how he wants to raise his son 
and the obstacles, the challenges, the difficulties that Charles Lindbergh grew up with, as all great people in history did. one 888 93 And that's uh, Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. Mike Slater. That's funny. No, no, we don't want to do both. <laughs> um, all right, so this uh, this book, Royal Manhood, 1899, you're going to hear me uh, quoted a lot over the next couple weeks and months. J- oh, by the way, I couldn't find my Lindbergh book. Sorry. Must be on the car. Apologies. Uh, James Isaac Vance was the reverend who wrote it, pastor. So the question is, what is strength? First, it is the absence of excuse-making. Quote, if I had that fellow's chance, if my circumstances were different, mm, if I had more money, out upon all such unmanly whimpering, the music of strength is not set in the key of wines. We must accept life as it is and make the best of it. Whenever a speaker begins with an apology, you may know his audience is to feed on chaff. Strength strikes the word excuse from its vocabulary. No excuse making. Strength is industry. Hard work is only another name for genius. And weakness is often only another name for laziness. A lazy man is a butt of ridicule for all of creation. The men who have achieved uh, success in medicine, law, literature, art, trade, have all been tireless workers. Strength is self-reliance. He goes on, he tells the story of Henry Ward Beecher. And uh, when he was a boy, now this is written, Henry Ward Beecher wrote this, so it was written a long time ago, so I'll try to translate it into modern language as I'm I'm reading here. Uh, He tells the story, he goes, I was sent to uh, to the blackboard, and I went uncertain, full of whimpering. That lesson must be learned said my teacher with terrible intensity. I want that problem. I don't want any reason why you haven't got it, he would say. Well, I studied for two hours. Okay, that's nothing to me. I want the lesson. You need not study it at all, or you need study it 10 hours. Just do it yourself. I want the lesson. It was tough for a greened boy, for a green boy, a young man, but it seasoned me. In less than a month, I had the most intense sense of intellectual independence and courage to defend my recitations. One day, his cold, calm voice fell upon me in the midst of a demonstration. So he was up there. He was uh, reciting. I don't know what the question was, right? So let's say, let's say it's recite the uh, preamble to the Constitution. We, the people, right? So go up there, recite the preamble. In the midst of it, in the middle of it, no. I hesitated and then went back to the beginning and on reaching that same point again, no, uttered in a tone of conviction. 
So he went back to the beginning and did it again. And when he got to the same point, the teacher again said no. Finally, the teacher said, sit down. Who's next? The next boy stood up and got to the same point that Henry Ward Beecher got to, the exact same part. And the teacher said, no. But the boy went right on, finished. And as he sat down, he was rewarded with very well. Whoa, 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 what? I recited it just as he did, but you said no. And the teacher said, well, why didn't you, why didn't you say yes and stick to it? It's not enough to know your lesson. You must know that you know it. You have learned nothing until you are sure. If all the world says no, your business is to say yes and prove it. That's the key part. Yes and prove it. One must, and then, uh, so back to the, the book. One must be sure of himself. He must have self-poise. This is not conceit. Conceit is all wind. Self-reliance is alertness and forethought. It is preparation and decision. All right, one more. He says there must be moral as well as physical strength. There must be the courage that stands to its convictions, whether people may think or whatever people may think or say. A young man came to Nashville, a church member, and with a clean moral record behind him. He had unusual advantages for success in a noble profession, so things were going to be good for him. But he began going to the devil for no other reason than he was weak. His companions were the kind that make the public suspicious and the people who associated with him uh, impure and dishonest. Two years were enough to bring his prospects in life to zero. Now this boy, he will whine about his poor chances and, and he'll whine about the little encouragement given by his friends. But the truth is he killed his chances with moral cowardice. Strength means moral courage and the ability to stand up against ridicule and popular culture. The Penn student that I shared a second ago is, is weak and lazy, according to this pastor. And I think the Berkeley protesters are cowardly and lack moral courage. We mentioned earlier the proper way to behave. It's not difficult. If you disagree with Milo's speech, you don't go. Or you have the humility uh, to understand that it's important that you do go. You might learn something. Now, here's what I would tell my son, Jack. Let's say, all right, son. You don't want to go to this thing because you think you disagree with that person. All right. You have to have the humility to go and listen. You have to have the courage to afterwards, that night or the next day, host a counter event. Post your own counter event to it. Then you have to have the intellect to pose counter arguments and a proper rebuttal to what you heard the night before. And then finally, you have to have the wit to beat Milo with charm. But all these things take strength. It all takes discipline. It all takes work. So you got to have the humility to listen. You got to have the courage to host a counter event. You have to have the intellect to follow through and then pose better arguments. And then you got to have the wit to beat it with the charm. But again, that takes strength and discipline and work. I feel the kids today realize that, it, and it's true, it is way easier to burn things or whine and complain about how weak you are, which just seems weird to do. 
I got 45 seconds. The national prayer breakfast was the other day. And, uh, one of the men who spoke was, uh, rear Admiral Barry black, uh, chief of Navy chaplains. He gave the baccalaureate address at my brother's graduation, uh, 13 years ago. And I'll never forget. He gave a speech. I was at the speech and he said, uh, two construction workers were taking a lunch break and one opened up his lunch bag and said, Oh, not bologna sandwiches again. This is the third time this week I've had bologna sandwiches. I hate bologna sandwiches. And this co-worker said, well, Bob, why don't you ask your wife to fix you something different? And Bob said, well, I'm not married. I made these sandwiches myself. And the point is, this, pa- this pastor says, most of the bologna we find in our lives, we put there ourselves. And any bologna that is in our lives that we didn't put there, overcome it. You can. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders. Let's uh, let's talk politics here. Haven't really done that yet. Uh, Gorsuch. So um, I want to give you a couple of reasons why Gorsuch will be nominated to the Supreme Court or uh, confirmed to the Supreme Court. No problem. Got to remember first the number one priority of TV news. What is the number one priority of TV news? We've shared this a few times before. You need, you must know this and look at everything you watch on TV news through this lens. The number one priority of TV news is to fill time. That's it. Anything else is happy coincidence. It's only to fill time. So all the talk about filibuster or the nuclear option, it's all just filling time. It's all talk. He will pass through no problem. Just always remember that. Number one priority is to fill time. That's it. So two reasons why he uh, will be... Confirmed, no problemo. First, with the political reason. Um, it's a little in the weeds, but I hope it, uh, I think I'll explain it clearly. So there's 100 people in the Senate, 100 senators. Every two years, so there's a six-year term, each senator's six-year term. Every two years, 33 senators are up for re-election, except for last year, 34 were. So that way, over six years, the whole thing cycles through. In 2018, so the next election, there are 23 Democrats up for re-election, two independents who are really Democrats, Bernie Sanders and uh, Angus King from Maine. So, so 25 Democrats and eight Republicans up for re-election. Now, check this out. This is the key. The Republicans who are up for re-election are all from super red states, Texas, Arizona, Utah, Wyoming, Nebraska, Mississippi, Tennessee, and I'm missing one. That's Arizona, Nevada. Okay. So they're all super red states. They'll be fine. All of those Republicans are going to win their seats again. The Democrats, the 25 Democrats, have a much tougher time. Ten of them, ten of those Democrats are, run, are Democratic senators who are running in states that Trump won. So you have Democratic senators running in red states. Montana, Florida, North Dakota, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Indiana, Missouri, West Virginia. I think I'm missing one. I don't know if that was nine or ten, but it's ten. 
either way. <laughs> so you have Democratic senators running in those 10 red states that Donald Trump won. So let's just take Pennsylvania, for instance. They have two senators, of course. Uh, Pat Toomey's a Republican. He won this last election. And then you have Democrat Bob Casey Jr. So Bob Casey Jr. is, is going to vote on whether or not to nominate Gorsuch. Now, what was the number one reason why people voted for Donald Trump? Well, so maybe immigration. There could be a couple different reasons. But let me, the number one reason why maybe uh, independents or people who were reluctant to vote for Donald Trump, what was the number one reason that those people voted for Donald Trump? Number one, by far, Supreme Court. Bob Casey Jr. knows that. He knows that more Republicans or more people voted for Donald Trump because of the Supreme Court pick than Democrats. So he has a very strong incentive, this Democrat from Pennsylvania, that has a very strong incentive to nominate or to uh, confirm Donald Trump's Supreme Court pick. Otherwise, he may lose his reelection because you know that the Republican who's running against him is absolutely going to say, hey, all the Trump Republicans, all the Trump voters who voted for Trump because of the Supreme Court pick, your senator voted no. Now, Pennsylvania, that may be a tough time, but the senator from North Dakota who's a Democrat, pff, like, like she will vote for Trump's Supreme Court pick. My point is Democrats will not be able to hold on this one. What was the, was it Rex Tillerson? I think it was Rex Tillerson. Four Democrats voted for Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State. So all the Republicans did, voted yes. All the Democrats voted no except for four. Three of those four were from one of those states I just mentioned. Three of those four were Democrats who are in Trump states. And they voted for Rex Tillerson. So if they voted for Rex Tillerson, then you know they're going to vote for the Supreme Court pick because most people didn't vote for Trump because of his Secretary of State pick. They voted for Trump because of the Supreme Court pick. So, like, no problem. He will roll through. Now, no, I shouldn't. The Democrats are going to put on this whole big show, right? Oh, they we're tough. We're tough. The seat was stolen, and we're going to, they're going to give him a tough time. But at the end of the day, they're, they're going to vote for him. But it'll be a big old dog and pony show. So that's reason number one, political. Second reason is Gorsuch is unassailable. There's no, you can't make a criticism against him. And he's really not that extreme. He's very conservative, but he's not a wild card. Now, of course, and you're going to hear a lot about this, but when he was confirmed for the 10th uh, Superior, uh, Court of Appeals, Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, unanimous. So that means Barack Obama, Joe Biden, and Hillary Clinton all voted for him when he was nominated to the 10th Circuit. Rachel Maddow the other day of all people said he's a mainstream pick. There's just no, there's nothing bad on him other than you disagree with him. But that's not... I mean, that, that's not a reason to vote against him just because you don't disagree with him. This is... Uh, and I've seen a couple essays like this from people like this. This is Neil Katal. He is a law professor at Georgetown Law. He was a solicitor general under Barack Obama. So he's a liberal. And he wrote an editorial in the New York Times, Why Liberals Should Back Neil Gorsuch. He says, I'm hard-pressed to think of one thing that Barack Obama, excuse me, I'm hard-pressed to think of one thing that President Trump has done right in the last 11 days since his inauguration. Until Tuesday, when he nominated an extraordinary judge and man, Neil Gorsuch, to be a justice on the Supreme Court. And then he says, he says, listen, I, for one, wish it were a Democrat choosing the next justice. But since that is not to be, one basic criterion should be paramount. 
is the nominee someone who will stand up for the rule of law and say no to a president or Congress that strays beyond the Constitution and laws? And he says, I have no doubt that if confirmed, Judge Gorsuch would help to restore confidence in the rule of law. Okay, so there's a bunch of progressives, a bunch of liberals uh, who have come out, who know him, who say, oh, this, so you can't. I mean, it's, he's great. And they all say, you know, listen, he's not the person we would choose because we don't agree with him on every issue. But he's super smart and follows the rule of law, and you really can't do much better with this. So they're all saying this is as good of a choice as we can get. So that's why Gorsuch will go through no problem. There's no real reason why you can't vote for him. So again, they'll make a big dog and pony show out of it um, to show that the Senate can't be bossed around, but uh, they'll be fine. Let me address one quick thing here. Um, the New York Times wrote an editorial about how uh, it's a stolen seat. And you're going to hear that a lot. It's a stolen seat. It should be Barack Obama's nominee, Judge Merrick Garland. Now, you lived through this whole thing, so we don't have to go over it again. But Barack Obama nominated a pretty moderate guy to the court. Merrick Garland is not super far left. And the Republicans said, uh, nope, <laughs> we're going to wait till the next presidential election. And people said, that's unprecedented. The Senate's job is to confirm the president's nominee. Well, not really. The president's job, according to the Constitution, is to nominate someone. And the Senate's job is to advise and consent. But it's not a rubber stamp, obviously. Otherwise, what's the point of having the Senate in the process at all? If, if the Senate is just there to confirm no matter what every time, why? Like, well, what's the point? But here's the important thing. Don't let the left rewrite history here. Let's go in the way back machine about 360 days ago when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland. The Republicans took a major gamble on not confirming him. Okay, go back a year ago. Who thought that a Republican was going to win the White House one year ago? Not many people. Not many people in this country thought that any Republican had a chance over Hillary Clinton. So the Republicans in the Senate took a big gamble. They could have consented a pretty moderate pick with Merrick Garland. I mean, pretty far on the left, but not crazy. Pretty moderate. Or take a gamble and hope that Hillary doesn't win. Because if Hillary won, you know she would nominate someone way more progressive than Merrick Garland. So the Republicans in the Senate took a gamble, hoping that a Republican won. So, I mean, it's easy to now, now see that the Republican won and be like, oh, well, Republican was a shoe in the whole time. No, 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 no. It was a risk. They could have taken Mayor Garland and then prevented Hillary from putting one of her Supreme Court justices up. Are you with me? See what I'm saying? But they said, ooh, okay, we're, we're going to see if a Republican will win. And very few people thought that that was ever going to happen. Don't let the media paint this picture like one year ago. Everyone, oh, obviously Republicans going to win the White House. So, uh, oh, the Republicans stalled waiting for the obvious choice, Donald Trump, to win the president. Like, no, no, that's not how that worked. So they took a gamble. It happened to pay off. And uh, he's the guy now. Stolen seat. By the way, it's not even... If you, if you read an article and they tell you that... Uh, oh, it's un unprecedented what's going on. Having, you know, someone... Uh, the court not full for uh, for this long. So it's been like, eh, like 360 days since... 
uh, 360 days or so with a vacant seat from Scalia. So there have been eight times in history with a seat that has been vacant longer than 360 days. The longest that a seat's been vacant is 841 days, then 781, then 535, then 508, then 504, and then 448, or excuse me, 484, and then 437, and then 391. And now we're at about 360. So not a, not a huge deal. one 900 I want to come back. Uh, one more thing about Gorsuch. Gorsuch is a perfect pick because he adds diversity to the Supreme Court. Wait, what do you mean? He's a middle-aged white guy. Mm-hmm. I'll explain next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on The Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, this is Mike Slater. I wonder if Trump or anyone else uh, in the administration is going to make this argument because it's, it's true. Uh, Gorsuch improves the diversity of the Supreme Court. He's a middle-aged white guy. What, do you, what, what does that mean? Supreme Court case 2015. Um, this was the gay marriage case. Scalia wrote a uh, dissent. By the way, and this is an example of the lazy media. Every time, any any TV news or whatever, whenever there's a confirmation hearing, it's always the senators grilling the nominee, right? So you're gonna you're gonna hear that when Gorsuch goes up and has his hearings, um, does his testimony, all that. They're gonna say uh, CNN. It'll be on the ticker. Uh, senators grilling Gorsuch. They're always grilling. And also, a lazy media, whenever they write about a dissent, whenever they refer to a dissent that a Supreme Court justice wrote, they always say it's a scathing dissent. <laughs> they'll, they'll never just put the word dissent. It always has to be scathing. Anyway, so Scalia, in the scathing dissent, said there should be no social transformation without representation. And, of course, that's a play on no taxation without representation from our uh, from our revolution. So what does he mean? No social transformation without representation. So the no, the social transformation was gay marriage. But without representation, what do you mean? He said this issue, gay marriage, is, is too important for nine people with zero diversity to decide on. And you think, well, hold on, zero diversity? I mean, there's a black person on the court. There's a Hispanic lady. What more? How much more diversity do you need to be? It's not about that. Look past the skin color. Don't be that shallow. This is what Scalia said. He said, take, for example, this court, which consists of only nine men and women, all of them successful lawyers who studied at Harvard or Yale Law School. By the way, there's nothing that says a Supreme Court justice has to be a lawyer or a judge before this. But all nine of them are lawyers who studied at Harvard or Yale Law School. Of all the law schools in the country, they all went to one of those two. Eight of them grew up in East East Coast states. Only one hails from the vast in-between. Not a single Southwesterner, or even to tell the truth, a genuine Westerner. California does not count, he said. 
not a single evangelical Christian, a group that comprises about one quarter of Americans, or even a Protestant of any denomination. This was actually my uh, college admissions essay. One of my, I had to write two. This is one of my essays about how diversity is way more than skin color. And I wonder, I wonder how that would fly if I was writing that today. Ugh, probably not good. Um, but that's what Scalia is talking about here. How can all nine of the Supreme Court justices have went to Harvard or Yale Law School? What the heck? And they're all from, except for Kennedy from California, they're all from Northeast states. No one else from in between. Come on. There's no real diversity in the Supreme Court. So, yes, this middle-aged white guy that Trump picked, he has true diversity. He's from the vast expanse in between Colorado. And he's Protestant. He'll be the only Protestant on the Supreme Court. So he brings two pretty big elements of diversity to the court. And if someone can't see that, then they're stuck on shallow diversity, which is just skin color. Not any other aspect of a person's personality, life, background, history, perspective, nothing. It's all about skin color. That defines you. Now, look past that. Coming up next, my advice. If I were a consultant for the Democratic Party or for uh, CNN, media, what would be my advice to them on how to stop Donald Trump? Now, this isn't for their benefit. It's for yours. Because if you see them doing this, then you know they're on to it. And they're on to him. So we'll talk about what that looks like. Coming up next, Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network.